Christ the Lord is risen today. This is why we're gathered here today and every week, by the way, as a church. Uh, This day is not about eggs or baskets or bunnies. It is about worshiping a God who's turned the whole world upside down, who's transformed our worship, transformed our weeks, and for many of us who have gathered here today, transformed our eternal destinies and lives by a single event He performed nearly 2,000 years ago. It's the day when death itself could not keep its prey. It's the, death, it's the day when the Son of Righteousness rose with healing in His wings. It is the day when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, shining as a beacon of hope and salvation for all who call on Him in faith. Just imagine briefly this morning that first Resurrection Sunday as those who saw the empty tomb came to slowly realize that all their fears, all their sorrows, and all their worries had been washed away in the dawning of that new day as they beheld an empty tomb. By faith in Jesus Christ, that Sunday morning they stood now in the light of life, of forgiveness, and of future glory. Imagine that joy. That is why Jesus said, it will never be taken away from you. That's why I love Resurrection Sunday. The light of that first Sunday still shines over us today. But this morning, I want to do something maybe a little different than you've had happen for other Easter (laughs) services. I want us all to see that Easter has, believe it or not, not only a bright past, but even a brighter future. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, Resurrection Sunday is not just a past event. It is actually the seed of a future victory. One that will transform our, the entire universe just as it did the course of history all those years ago. Believe it or not, the joy of that first Easter morning will not even be able to be compared with the joy that is yet to come. And so this morning, I want the joy of Easter past and the joy of Easter future to come together in your minds and hearts and shine their truths over us today as we discover from God's Word where Easter is heading. And to find that out, we actually have to go to the past. We have to go to the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 25. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn there to Isaiah chapter 25. Now the name of Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. And that's an appropriate title considering the content of this book. You see, Isaiah has been called by many the Old Testament Gospel because even though it was written over 700 years before Jesus of Nazareth ever even came to earth, it still presents a full scope of his life when you read it. From the announcement of Jesus' coming to his virgin birth, to his proclamation of good news, to his sacrificial death, to his victory over the grave, to his promise to return. It's all found here in the prophet Isaiah, written 700 years before the birth of Christ. And that's why the prophet Isaiah is directly quoted over 65 times in the New Testament, far more than any other Old Testament prophet. It's because it is so explicitly about Christ. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at one such prophecy from Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. And what we'll see is that by going back to this ancient prophecy, 
we'll actually discover a clear picture of the future. The future of where Easter is heading. And so this morning, let's go back to the future. Let's read Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. We're going to see from this passage three very simple points from these four verses. We're going to see that Easter is headed to a great feast. That's in verse 6. A great victory. That's in verses 7 through 8. And a great reunion. That's in verse 9. So a great feast, a great victory, a great reunion. We don't celebrate just a past event. We celebrate a present reality and a future hope today. A great feast, a great victory, a great reunion. So with that in mind, let's read Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. The prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes down these words for us today. Isaiah 25, verse 6 through 9. Verse 6. On this this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. This is the Word of God whose commandments His people love above gold, even fine gold. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the good news of Jesus Christ. It is a message that we exalt in today as we look back on Christ's resurrection from the dead. But it was good news that was even prophesied before in advance that they look forward to with great hope and expectancy. Father, we thank You for all that Easter is and all that it represents. And I simply pray this morning that You would remind us once again as Your people of what Jesus Christ accomplished through His death, burial, and resurrection. And what that means for us who believe in Him. And what that means for the world, the fallen world we're living in. And what that means for the future. We have a joy rooted in an empty tomb that can never be taken away from us because of Jesus. Remind us, Father, of the truth 
the glorious truth that's promised in this passage. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to Isaiah 25 and we start to approach our passage this morning, I want you to notice first that this chapter begins with Isaiah showering expressions of love, exaltation, worship, and praise upon God. He says in verse 1, if you have your Bible open to Isaiah 25, he says in verse 1, O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will praise Your name. Right? In other words, Lord, You are so great. You are so exalted. You are so wonderful. I just want to praise You for who You are. And then he tells us why at the end of this verse. He says at the end of verse 1, For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. I want to point point that out because what we're about to study this morning is an overflow of the prophet Isaiah's heart. As Isaiah sees God's vision of the future through prophetic eyes, he realizes that the Lord has accomplished wonderful things. God's unveiling of the future looks great as he sees it. And when Isaiah realizes that all these visions, all these plans that God has formed are faithful and sure, in other words, that they are guaranteed to take place, he can't help but worship. What a great God you are. And then in verses 2-5 through of this chapter, Isaiah gives us a little picture summary of what that wonderful plan of God is, and it's basically a Sparks Notes version of the entire book of Isaiah describing in just a few short sentences that God's not only going to subdue the Gentile peoples of the world, the enemies of Israel, but He's also going to save them. And so while Isaiah prophesies in verses 2 and 5 about cities of foreigners being cast down into ruin and songs of the ruthless being silenced, he also says right in the middle of that passage in verse 3, therefore strong peoples will glorify you. And the cities of ruthless nations will Fear you. Wow. Do we need that today? So this is the faithful and sure and wonderful plan of God that Isaiah is allowed by the Spirit of God to see. Not only God's future subjugation of the nations beneath the feet of His Savior, but also His salvation of them. And then beginning in verse 6, Isaiah begins to describe the amazing catalyst that, that begins this wonderful plan. In other words, the rock that starts the avalanche, if you will. And Isaiah's pen must have shook as he started to write these words down. See if any of these truths sound familiar. Notice in verse 6, we discover first that Easter is headed to a great feast. A great feast, Isaiah declares in verse 6, on this mountain, that is Mount Zion, as the rest of Isaiah makes clear, on this mountain in Jerusalem, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Isaiah describes the type of feast that would only be that would only be uh, taking place during a time of great celebration, either at a time of military victory or perhaps a great wedding. And so Isaiah is looking into the future and he's saying, God has achieved something. He's achieved a victory that demands celebration. And the spoils of that victory are richer than you could ever possibly imagine. Isaiah describes it in physical terms for us who are physical beings to understand, right? Isaiah describes it as a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine 
a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. Can you capture that image in your mind? If that's your Easter dinner, invite me over. I want to come. Imagine sitting down at a banqueting feast that is piled high with the richest of foods imaginable. Baskets overflowing with the sweetest and freshest of fruits. Goblets filled with the brim with the most pleasant and flavorful of liquids. Mountain Dew, silver platters carrying the most succulent of meats. Do you get the picture? Right? Whatever has happened, whatever has taken place, whatever victory God has achieved, and we're not told yet what it is, it is worth the greatest of celebrations. So much so that the divine host himself gets involved in it. Notice it says, the Lord of hosts himself is the one who has made for all peoples this feast of rich foods. Right? God himself has prepared it. God himself has presented it. God himself is serving it. It's just like what Jesus foretold in Luke 12, 37, when he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the master will dress himself for service and have his servants recline at table, and he himself will come and serve them. So there is a day coming when God himself will present to his people a rich feast of salvation upon Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The richest of feasts for the richest of salvations. This is where Easter is heading. It's towards a great feast, a great celebration. But listen, the only people who can participate in that final feast of salvation are those who participated in God's first feast of salvation. The feast that God Himself presented on Mount Zion nearly 2,000 years ago. That feast when God Himself climbed the hill of Calvary and there offered up on the cross His own very life as a payment for the forgiveness of our sins. There as the Son of Man was lifted up, He laid out in Himself a feast of salvation for all who would come to Him in faith and eat. As Jesus said in John 6.51, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, in other words, whoever appropriates for himself by faith the offering of my flesh and blood, whoever trusts in my death on the cross for their salvation, Jesus says, has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So Easter is headed towards a great feast and it's all because of that first great feast of salvation that Jesus offered up on the cross for all people who believe. As it was prophesied in Genesis 22:14, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. But it's only provided for those who come. It's only provided for those who come. And so come, everyone who thirsts, as Isaiah 55, verse 1 says, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Join in the feast of salvation today so that you may join in the feast of celebration tomorrow. This is the first thing that we see about this passage. Easter is headed to a great feast the greatest of celebrations imaginable, where on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. But why is this great feast being celebrated? Answer, it's because a great victory has been won. 
And that brings us to the second and main point of this passage in verses 7-8. through eight, That Easter is headed to a great victory. A great victory. As Isaiah peers down through the corridors of time, he sees a reason why Mount Zion is rejoicing. Why they're feasting. And it is because God has won a great victory for His people. A great victory over death, sorrow, and shame. So first, God has accomplished a great victory. Notice first, over death. That's in verses 7 through the beginning of verse 8, where the prophet Isaiah writes down, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. This is remarkable. Is there anyone here this morning who is not touched by their tremendous need for this victory to be won on your behalf? If you're sitting here this morning thinking, I don't see what the big deal of Jesus rising from the dead is, my only answer is simply, it won't be long until you do. Because the reality of death is something that none of us here can long hide ourselves from. The day is coming soon, sooner than you expect. When you're going to be looking into the grayed face of a loved one, or you're going to be lying on a hospital bed, realizing you're on the very edge of eternity itself. And in that moment, the piercing thought will strike you that there is absolutely nothing you can do about it. You are absolutely powerless in the face of death. You cannot save your loved one. You cannot save yourself. You can do nothing. Now, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and a God who can can give life to the dead, then there's only one of two ways that you can respond to the reality of the world that we live in, to the reality of death and all of this. One, you can be an escapist, right? Just run away from the reality of it all and pretend that death doesn't really matter or doesn't really exist. And this is what most of our culture does. We don't want to be confronted with the inconvenient truth of our own mortality. And so what do we do when someone gets old? We send them off to their own home where they can die on their own out of sight. When an infant perishes in the womb or shortly thereafter, we stay hush-hush. We don't talk about it. We just pretend like it never really happened. And when someone dies that we know, we just send a card. But some of us don't even go to funerals because, well, I just don't do well at funerals. And instead of dealing with the reality... We occupy ourselves with all these other distractions so that we don't have to think about it. We become escapists. The only other way to respond to the reality of death apart from Christ is to be a pessimist. right? To follow the logic of it all all the way to the end and conclude, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. As the poet Thomas Gray once wrote, the boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty or wealth e'er gave Await alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead all to the grave. What's the point of anything if we all perish? In that moment when I stand on the precipice of eternity, my career, my income, my relationships, my achievements, and my life will all mean nothing if it's all swallowed up in death. Just as Isaiah says, when you actually look at the world you're living in, It's a covering, a veil of sorrow that casts itself over all people. See, the only way that you can actually live in the reality 
of this world with a positive mindset is if you believe and have come to know that though you can't do anything in the face of death, there is someone who can and someone who already has. Someone who has stared death in the eye and knocked its lights out. Someone who has taken death, that great devourer of man, and has devoured it himself by the power of his own indestructible life. Someone who can set us free from the dread of our graves because he broke his way out of his own. His name is Jesus. How do you live in this world without Jesus? Without being an escapist and a pessimist, but a realist. You can only do it with Jesus. His name is Jesus. Hebrews 2, 14-15 says that Jesus, God the Son, He became a man. He took on flesh and blood just like us. Why? So that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and listen to this, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, through Jesus, the veil of death's dread that was cast over all peoples is now cast off all those who trust in Him. As he himself said in Revelation 1, 17-18, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. And what is Jesus doing with those keys? He's working towards the day prophesied here in Isaiah 25, when, as Revelation 20, verse 14 says, Death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Because Jesus is alive, Death itself will one day die. It will be wiped out of existence forever. As Revelation 21 verse 4 says, death shall be no more. That is a reason to celebrate. Just as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15, 54-55, when he considered this future day when death would die, Paul writes, using Isaiah's very own words, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death itself will one day die. We are inevitably being carried forward to that great day. Why? Christ has already won. He's triumphed over the grave. See, He's not only died, He rose. And He not only arose, He ascended. And not only did He ascend, but He will one day descend. He is coming again. And when He does, death itself will be swallowed up in victory. And this is... This victory over death is not some future thing, by the way. Only some future thing. It can be yours today by faith. As Jesus said in John eleven twenty five through 26 I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, don't just look to a coming day. Look to me. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is the glory of Christ's resurrection. Rather than being swallowed up by death, In Christ, death is swallowed up for us who believe. To such a degree that Jesus himself can promise in John 8, 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, in other words, if anyone believes in me, he will never see death. We'll pass by death so fast we won't even experience it. 
Because we have become one with the resurrection and the life by grace through faith, we go from life to life everlasting. From the presence of this world into the presence of our Savior, just like that. That's a reason to celebrate. Death is swallowed up in victory. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So our victory in Christ is won over death. It's what we celebrate today, a victory over death. Second, it is a victory over sorrow. And if the first one wasn't impossible enough, then I look at this one. How miraculous that it says, He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. I don't know about you. Sometimes life hurts. Living in this fallen world, we are struck with wounds that time itself cannot mend. Wounds of injustice, wounds of war, wounds of pain, sorrow, sickness, death. We're a broken people, living in a broken world. And we need a great physician. We need someone who can heal our wounds. We need someone who can take what has gone wrong in this world and make it right. Someone who can bring joy out of sorrow peace out of war, health out of sickness, strength out of weakness, and life out of death. We have such a one. His name is Jesus. He alone can take this broken universe and bring about healing. He alone can take broken hearts and wipe away tears forever. And He alone proved it by rising from the dead. Revelation 5.2, which we read this morning, described that very scene when God is holding the title deed of the universe in His hand and a mighty angel proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? In other words, who is able to draw all the timelines of this world into one great conclusion for the glory of God and the salvation of His people? Who can bring good out of all this evil? And John the Apostle records in verse 3, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. If that was the end of the story, John's weeping would have continued forever because it meant that God had lost control that there was no end to the injustice, that there was no healing that could be brought to the pain, that there was no payment for the iniquity, there was no hope in face of the sorrow and death of this world in the present age. We would be doomed forever to an existence of weeping and mourning and dying forever. But here's the good news, that wasn't the end of the story. One of the elders, the believers in heaven, say to John, Weep no more. Why? For behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered that he can open the scroll. In verse 6, out of the crowd walks Jesus, bearing in his body the wounds of his death and yet standing full of life and power. And Jesus goes and he takes that scroll And he opens it. 
And Revelation records systematically how one by one Jesus proceeds to wipe away every injustice, every sin, every sorrow, every tear, and bring the entire universe to a place of righteousness, peace, and joy forevermore. And that's why when you turn to Revelation 7, verse 17, you read this, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then in Revelation 21, verse 4, at the end of history itself, what do we read? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is something that only Jesus can do. For He has conquered. It all begins with the resurrection. This is where Easter is heading. Weep no more. The Lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. I have said these things to you, John 15.11 says, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. That is a reason to celebrate. God has won for us a victory over death, a victory over sorrow, and finally, a victory over shame. End of verse 8. And he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Now, this could mean the reproach of Israel among the nations brought about by Israel's own sin and rebellion, and doubtless to a degree it does. But remember, this passage is in the context of God winning a way of salvation for all who believe, not only from Jerusalem, but from all the nations of the earth. And there is a reproach that lies upon every soul, whether Jew or not. And that is the reproach of our sin. See, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even the best of us, with all of our supposed good works, stand naked before the eyes of a perfectly holy God, clothed in nothing but our own filthy rags. We stand naked and ashamed, covered with guilt and reproach, covered with shame. And here we come at last to the first and primary reason why Christ came, lived, died, and rose again. It was to save us from our sins. As Romans 4.24 says, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, He died to take away our sin and He rose again to impart to us His righteousness. So that we would no longer be like Adam and Eve, if you remember in the Garden of Eden. Naked in shame before a holy God, but rather would through Christ's death and resurrection stand clothed by faith in the robes of His very own righteousness. Christ came to take away the reproach of His people by taking away the reproach of their sin and covering their nakedness and their shame with His own righteousness. For God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. See, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, He has taken away our reproach. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has saved us from the penalty of our sin. He is saving us from the power of our sin. And one day He will save us from the very presence of sin altogether. He will take away our reproach. This is the victory that Isaiah saw cascading down through the centuries. That Jesus, that as Jesus paid for and rose triumphant over our sin, in one fell swoop, He conquered everything else for us in that moment as well. He conquered death. 
Why did He conquer death? Because death is the eternal penalty for our sin. Jesus conquered sorrow. Why did He conquer sorrow? Because sorrow is the earthly result of our sin. And He conquered shame. Why? Because shame is the internal guilt over our sin. Death, sorrow, and shame all came crumbling down as Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He took away our reproach. He forgave our sins. This is a reason to celebrate. And the best is yet to come. Death will die. Sorrow will flee away. Shame will be forever removed. End of verse 8. For the Lord has spoken. You know what that means? It means it's a done deal. Just like Isaiah said back in verse 1, these wonderful things, these plans formed of old, are faithful and sure. Because God does not lie. As God said in Revelation 21, verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. For I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Lord has risen. The Lord has spoken. The victory is as good as won. That's a reason to celebrate. This is where Easter is headed. It's headed to a great feast, a great victory. And finally, Easter is headed to a great reunion. And that's in verse 9. Where it says this, It will be said on that day, Behold, look, this is our God. We've waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. See, there is a day coming when our God, the Lord, the One we have waited for, will return in clouds of power and glory. And we will at last see the face of Him for whom we have longed so long. The One who won our victory. The One who conquered our death and our sin and our sorrow and our shame. There's a day coming when you and I who have trusted in Christ will see Him face to face. If you don't know Christ, you're sitting there thinking, this is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Why are you so excited about it? It's because you don't know Jesus. But if you were to know Him, this is the love and longing of your heart. To see the One who won the victory for you. We'll see Him one day face to face, and in that day there will be nothing but joy and everlasting gladness in His presence forevermore. As Isaiah 35 verse 10 states, Therefore the redeemed of the Lord, they shall return and shall come singing into Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Because of the resurrection, there is a great reunion that is coming. This is the first thing, by the way, that Jesus declared right after His resurrection, if you recall. As He stood outside His tomb, Jesus told Mary in John 20, verse 17, Go and tell My brothers, I'm ascending to My Father and to what? Your Father. To My God and to Your God. That relationship with God that was once broken because of sin is restored through faith in Jesus Christ. 
and is leading us to a day when, as Revelation 21, verse 3 says, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. And as one of my favorite verses say, Revelation 22, verse 4, they shall see His face. Because of the resurrection, there is a great reunion coming when we shall see the Lord, our God, the One who has known us and loved us for so long. And it's all because of the resurrection. It's all because of what God has done. See, we don't earn our own salvation. It was won for us through Christ. That's why the very last phrase of this passage says let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation he's the one that accomplished it salvation belongs to our god he's made the feast he swallowed up death he wiped away tears he bore our reproach in our place he decreed it he planned it he performed it he saved us to god be the glory great things he has done That is a reason to celebrate. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. So while Easter has a bright past, and oh, it is bright, I want you to know that it has even a brighter future for those who embrace it by faith. The future of every soul who is trusted in Jesus Christ is headed to a great feast, a great victory, and a great reunion one day where there will be no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow nor shame anymore. And it's all because of Jesus. So as we sing, death could not keep His prey. Jesus, my Savior, He tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord, up from the grave, He arose with a mighty, as a mighty victor, or his foes. He arose the victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah, Christ arose. So how about you? Do you have a reason to celebrate today? Really? First, what have you done about this risen Savior? This resurrection and the life. Do you really have a reason to celebrate today? If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have no reason to celebrate today. In fact, there's no other reason why you're even here today except that God, by His grace, brought you here to listen to this message. What have you done about this risen Savior? You know the victory that Jesus won. He won for you if you will trust in Him. This wonderful future, this wonderful salvation is available to all those who trust in Him. As Isaiah says repeatedly throughout this passage, this feast was made for all. All, all. He keeps on saying it. 
All you must do is come. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Be saved from your sin and shame. Be saved from the death that you deserve to die. Be saved from your sorrow. And then comes to pass the saying that is written, death itself is swallowed up in victory. That could be said of you this resurrection day. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Secondly, If Christ has won for you the victory over sin, death, sorrow, and shame, then don't let yourself be shaken by those very things that He has conquered for you, believer. It is true. We are living in a world, in this world, and we're still confronted with sin and death and sorrow and shame on a daily basis. But don't let those things shake you up and take you out of the fight and out of worship of our God, believer. The Lord has spoken. The Lord is risen. The Lord is already one. These are glorious things. Things planned of old. Faithful and sure. This wonderful future. The Lord has spoken. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If Christ has won for you the victory over sin, death, sorrow, and shame, then don't let fear of those very things keep you from following Christ, believer. Don't be shaken by them. Because these are the facts and future of Easter. No more death. No more sorrow. No more shame. That is a reason to celebrate. And this is the Word of God. From Isaiah 25, 6-9, which I now commit to your further study, and your faithful obedience... And until our mighty victor returns, let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. To that end, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the victory that Christ won on our behalf. We thank you, Father, that he has conquered death in our place. Thank You that He has sown the seeds in which sorrow itself will be removed. We thank You that because of His resurrection, our shame is gone. Father, what good news to share to a world that is just trying to escape It's turning towards escapism or pessimism. We can speak the reality of the resurrection into their lives. Help us to do so as your people. We have but one message. It is Christ. Christ, the pure and perfect one who has lived, who has died, who has risen, who is coming again. Father, I pray that if there's someone here this morning that is understanding for the first time exactly what Christ has done for them and the righteousness and salvation they can find through faith in Him, I pray that this day would be the day of their salvation as they confess their sins to You and their faith in Jesus Christ. May this day be a day in which the resurrection of Jesus Christ is worshipped and praised. For your honor and for your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name.